0: Today will be, except for that. That's still bright. It's going to be that way. All right. Proverbs chapter 7. We're in Proverbs chapter 7 today. I love reading about history. And one era of history I really like reading about is World War II. And the awesome thing about World War II is you can read about many, many different aspects of World War II. So, Man, I mean, you can read about, uh, the battles, all the different battles. You can read about Germany and the rise of Nazism. Uh, you can read about Italy or, or Russia. Uh, you can read about the Allied powers or the war in the Pacific. I mean, there's so many different, um, areas of World War II that you can read about. And one that I find the most interesting is, is the battle between Nazism and democracy and how it really centers around two men. The battle for Nazism and democracy really kind of came down to two men, Winston Churchill and Adolf Hitler. It was a battle of two great minds. Obviously, many other battles, obviously many things going on, but these two men were very pivotal, especially Winston Churchill being very pivotal pivotal in, the, in this battle. And by the time uh, Churchill became Prime Minister of Britain, like the people were demoralized. They were they were basically ready to just give in and and negotiate with Hitler. Like he had invaded France, right? Occupied Paris. Like the last defense before the English Channel is gone, and Hitler seems impossible to stop, impossible to beat. And so they're just like ready to just say, "Well, we don't want to fight a war against this guy." So Churchill comes on the scene to persuade the British people and the government why it's better to go to war against Germany than to give in to their demands. One of the things about Winston Churchill, though, is like he's not only like this great leader. He not only had like great leadership skills, but he also had knowledge of his enemy. He had a working knowledge of who his enemy was, especially uh, in the person of Hitler. They say you can't fight your enemy unless you know your enemy. So I don't know if you remember back in 2015, there was this big debate over whether we should call ISIS uh, Islamic extremists or Islamic terrorists, right? Uh, and there's a debate over whether we what we call them. Uh, and it was a bait, debate really about how well we know our enemy, right? How well do we know our enemy and what they're doing? And so this knowledge of his enemy is not only what allowed Churchill to fortify the British people against Hitler, but also to go on the offensive against Hitler, this knowledge of who Hitler was and how he thinks and how he operates. And there's a really controversial decision that Churchill made. You can read all about it. He decided to bomb a a civilian city in Germany, and there's many interpretations many scholars talk about like the ethics of this decision but some scholars actually believe that Hitler bombing the civilian city was used by Churchill to drive Hitler deeper into madness so they would say Churchill was using the knowledge of his enemy you can't fight an enemy that you don't know well an enemy you don't know well will surprise you with tactics and will outsmart you into giving in or into defeat. And what we have in Proverbs 7 is a detailed illustration of the tactics of the enemy. That's what Proverbs 7 is. It's a it's detailed tactics of or it's a detailed illustration of the tactics of the enemy. Now the enemy here is the adulteress specifically, but we can kind of back out and say it's Um, temptation in general. So, temptation, right? So, Solomon is teaching his son how to identify the tactics of temptation to help his son fight it, flee from it, and defend against it. It's, it's what I like to call, Proverbs 7, I like to call the, the anatomy of temptation, the, the ins and outs. It's tactics. It's how it operates and and what it wants. So my goal today is to equip you with knowledge of your enemy. This is not a one and done enemy. You defeat him in one battle, he's he's gone from that area or that city or whatever. No, this is a smart, everyday, moment by moment enemy. So let's turn to Proverbs chapter 7 and learn... The Anatomy of Temptation. Proverbs 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I looked looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward, Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, come. Let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He is gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him and at full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This chapter, right, if you're observant, is, begins with the prelude and ends with the conclusion. So the prelude is verses 1 to 5, and the conclusion is verses 24 to 27. And I actually want to get to those two things later, right, with their bookends. And I want to get to those later. So actually I'm going to start with verse 6. And, and verse this, this first part of temptation actually has less to do with temptation and more to do with us And that is ignorant, unwariness. Ignorant, unwariness. Solomon, in this chapter, describes looking out of his window, basically, and seeing a young man. Now, whether this actually happened or he's describing a general event isn't actually important. Uh, What is important is what he describes the young man doing. What does he see the young man doing? Right at the window of my house... I have looked out through my lattice, I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. What is he doing? Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. The first business of temptation is tricking us into inching towards sin. Right. The first business of temptation is is to get us to toe the line or seeing how close that we can get browse the internet until we just stumble upon what we're really looking for. When I was a, a teenager, I used to think, right, sin, like, how, what's the line I cross until I get to sin? How close can I get to sin? And that's a dumb question. That's exactly what this guy is doing. How close can he get? And it's not only important what this young man is doing, but when he's doing it. He's just meandering at night. My parents used to tell me, nothing good happens after midnight. And that's when I used to think all the fun happened. No, all the fun happens after midnight, but now I know they were right because really nothing good did happen after midnight. This young man is, is foolishly wandering close to the adulteress's house in the cover of night. We only... Sin when it's safe to do it, isn't it? When we feel like we won't get caught. And what all of this means, this whole description, is that this young man is willfully ignorant and completely unwary. Right? He's wandering right into where he will be the most tempted at a great time of weakness. And isn't it true that we sin because deep down, like, we want to sin? And we just kind of we're, we become willfully ignorant. We turn a blind eye to the conviction of sin and to the consequences. Temptation always wants to trap us at our moments of weakness. That's why it's so important, right, to have self-knowledge. Yes, it is important to know yourself. Mallory will be the first to tell you, I have a weak gut. By weak gut, I mean a stinky gut and an overactive gut. And it has taken me forever to figure out what foods upset my stomach and which don't. What I need and needed is this observant knowledge about what weakens my body, right? In the same way, we must know our weaknesses and our weak spots. When we are most vulnerable to temptation. It means being aware about what situations tempt you the most and when you are most tempted. If you are most tempted when you're at a computer screen, you need to have the self-knowledge to know that that's going to happen. Or when you're home alone. Or when you're with a certain group of friends. That's what it means to be self-aware. And that's the first part of temptation. The second part of temptation is when, is when that temptation seizes our moments of weakness. So in verses 10 to 12, temptation comes with relentless advances. As this young man meanders and comes closer to the moment of temptation, what temptation comes out to meet him, right? What does it say? Behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home now on the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. Temptation is waiting for any moment, at any time, at any place. And when it's ha- and it has its moment, verse 13, she seizes Him and kisses Him. Temptation comes with relentless advances it's very designed is to make you believe you can't win or resist like you have it's designed is to make you think you have no other option but to give in right when hitler bombed london in the blitzkrieg the the whole design was to pummel the british people into just giving in Right? We've been in quarantine and lockdowns, and and these quarantines and lockdowns seem to pummel us, to to demoralize us, and end our resolve, and make us sleepy and lethargic. So when temptation comes, it feels like we have no other option but to give in. Isn't that how temptation is? Right? At first, it might be like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to resist, I'm going to fight. But temptation is relentless. Right? If you read the, the story of Jesus' temptations, temptation didn't go away the first time, it didn't go away the second time. Right? Temptation kept coming back. And it wants us to think that it's going to keep coming back so that there's no point in resisting. This is why Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 10 No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, listen to what he says, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Temptation doesn't completely go away. Even if it goes away for a moment, it's going to come right back. But God gives us the grace to obey Him even when our hearts are pulling us to disobey Him. And when temptation relentlessly advances against us, it dresses up. So the third part of temptation is religious disguise. Look at how the adulteress dresses uh, her sin, the sin in religious language. Verse 13, she seizes Him and kisses Him and with bold face she says to Him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. I hate when people blame religion for all the bad things that either happen in the world or have happened. But I have to admit they have a point. Because in history, people have used religion to get what they really want and to commit some of the worst atrocities. It's not obviously, it's not religion that's the problem; it's the people. But we do the same thing, don't we? Right? We use our religion as justification for giving into sin. So we either say, "Oh, I've I've been good, I've been obedient." This isn't harmful to me. Maybe we even trick ourselves into thinking I need to be rewarded. Or probably more common, God will forgive me. God will just show mercy to me. That's what it looks like to use, to cloak temptation in religious disguise. It wants us to to cover it up. Thomas Watson wrote that It is sad when the goodness of God, which should lead to repentance, instead leads to presumption. O sinner, do not hope thyself into hell. Take heed of being damned upon a mistake. You say God is merciful and therefore you go on securely in sin. But who is mercy for the presuming sinner or the mourning sinner? This idea of using religion or or God's grace or whatever you want to say as as a disguise for sin or temptation is the age-old temptation that the serpent uttered in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Right? We use God's own words against Him and twist them to mean what we want them to so, the anatomy, part of the anatomy of temptation is being aware of temptation's religious disguise. Fourth part of temptation in verse 15 is feigned intimacy. Feigned intimacy. Look at verse 15. I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you. To seek you eagerly. And I have found you. Sin and temptation have this way of making us feel special. And and what's what's interesting is, is this. If on the one hand, right, temptation tricks us into believing God will just forgive me. Then on the other, it tricks us into believing God won't give me what I want. Temptation has this way of making us feel special about ourselves, or it makes us feel like this spread pleasure is special, but in either case, you believe it will give you what you can't get anywhere else. Sin and temptation will have you believe that in these, you will get something that you won't be able to get anywhere else. One reason why I love traveling is eating like good, authentic, foreign food. When I'm on vacation, I have no diet restriction or whatever because I want to eat this while I can because you can't get it anywhere else. Temptation's promise is to give you something that you just can't get anywhere else. This is exactly how pornography operates. Right? You feel like you're looking at this woman and you're the only person in the world. But what you don't see are the hundreds or thousands of other people that are also looking at the same person. But all of this points to the reality that the root of all sin is unbelief. The root of all sin is unbelief. All temptation and sin makes us believe that we must get this pleasure somewhere else because we can't find it in God. So do you see how the battle of sin is a battle of belief? Either we're believing what God says and we can find what we want in God or we're believing sin and going outside of God to find what we really want. It's a battle of belief. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It's all a matter of unbelief because at the end of the day, God just wasn't enough for us. So we choose in temptation and sin not to believe God and believe something outside of God instead. So sin and temptation have this feign intimacy. Temptation promises to give us a pleasure that we just can't find in God or in His will. But the pleasure it promises is all phony anyway. The fifth part of temptation is manipulative pleasure. Verse 16. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. She's cloaking this pleasure. She has to bring all of these other elements in to make it seem like real pleasure. Every four years, there's a major world event called the World Cup. And all the best nations, soccer teams, compete in this tournament. Uh, and it's, it's actually the most watched event in the world, more than the Olympics. That's why everyone needs to be a fan of soccer. But I'll keep going. In in 2022, the World Cup is going to take place in a small Arabic country called Qatar. Qatar's massively wealthy, massively wealthy country. And I'm sure that if you went to the World Cup in Qatar, invite me by the way, it, you would be so impressed by all like all not only all the buildings, but they built these. Brand-new stadiums to host the world's teams, brand-new, state-of-the-art, multi-billion-dollar stadiums. You'd be wowed at, at seeing them. But what these stadium owners and the government want to hide is that the pleasure of all of these new facilities come at the cost of slave labor and massive human rights violations. So pleasure most people are going to enjoy is, is a manipulated pleasure. What I mean by this is, is what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He called, he called evil a parasite, right? Evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil is a perversion of good. And He wrote, goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness a man, in order to be bad, must have good things to want and then pursue them in the wrong way. About murder, right? Why is a murder, murder? He gets some kind of twisted pleasure from it. Pleasure itself is good. But he's going about getting that pleasure in an evil way. So what I'm trying to say is that the pleasure that sin promises is always a borrowed pleasure. It's not real. It's empty. The pleasure it promises to give you that you just can't seem to get anywhere else is a pleasure given through distortion. It takes what is real, true, and God-glorifying pleasure and dresses it up so that you don't see it for the fake pleasure that it is. There's an old trick in, in advertising that you guys might be familiar with That in order to sell certain products you need to create the problem that makes them necessary. It's exactly what manipulative pleasure is. Closely related to that in the sixth part of temptation is obscured outcomes. Verse 19 For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. You guys ever heard the quote, the the devil is a gentleman? We don't often think of the devil as being courteous or honest, but he can be honest. The adulteress was real about having a husband, but what she fails to mention is what happens when he comes home. Temptation is master of hiding consequences. Master of hiding consequences. There are several different species of of these kinds of plants found in the rainforest, but it's a plant called a a pitcher plant. It's shaped kind of like a gourd and the top is open and it has like a, a mouth, it has a lid. And it's filled with sweet nectar. And so this sweet nectar attracts all these insects. And these insects, they get this this sweet nectar and they get hungry and hungrier. So the hungrier and hungrier they get, the deeper they go into this plant. And when they get deep enough, the plant shuts its mouth so that they're trapped inside. And these insects end up getting digested by these enzymes. The true nature of this nectar was hidden from them. Temptation always hides the effects of sin. Even when the effect the is over, even when you feel guilty or, or bad or whatever, it still hides what it's doing to you. It never gives you the full picture. Like, think about it. Do we have the ability to like look into our own hearts? Do, do we have a measure for how each sin measure, hardens our hearts? Do we have like an MRI or a machine to see the exact extent to which sin destroys our faith? The truth is, you have no idea how much sin wreaks havoc on your faith and on your heart, and sin will never show you. It will never show you. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare. he does not know it will cost him his life. Every sin, whether you're a Christian or not, has a cost. How do you know when it will demand its payment? That's the anatomy of temptation. That's the the knowledge of our enemy. How it works. But like I mentioned, Solomon bookends this description with what I'm calling our last point, Powerful solutions. Powerful solutions. The first solution found in verses 1 to 5 is love of wisdom. He says, my son, keep my words. Keep my words and treasure up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight, your intimate friend." To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. The, The fight against temptation is first and foremost and most fundamentally a fight of loves. Right? When God saves you, right? It's not a get into heaven free pass. He saves you from your love for sin to a love for Him. He changes your love the bent of our hearts will either be toward love of God and the the love of wisdom to follow Him, or it will be toward love of sin. So the first solution is love for God, and the second is the other side of that, fear of judgment. Verse 24, Now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to our ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, to hell. Going down to the chambers of death. Listen, it is true that fear of hell will not save you. Fear of hell alone is not enough to save you. There must be true and sincere love for God. But fear of judgment is a powerful motivator in fighting temptation. I like to say that the fear of God is walking up to the edge of a cliff and knowing what it means to step over. Hebrews 10:31 says, "It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of a living God, of the living God." And so a proper view of sin and temptation means knowing what it means every time I sin against a holy God. Love of God and fear of judgment, He gives us these powerful solutions. So part of wisdom that I've talked about before is the ability to observe and identify and name. So it's the ability, right, to point something out as a reality, say this thing is true, this thing is real, this is happening, and respond to it correctly. Right? It's like a doctor um, having the ability to diagnose a sickness or a cure and be able to respond to it correctly. That's wisdom. So in this case, it's the ability to observe and see the tactics of temptation so that we can respond correctly to it. But more deeply, wisdom, before it can ever respond to temptation correctly, it must respond to grace correctly. If we use grace as an excuse to sin, then that shows we don't understand grace at all. A proper view of grace has the opposite effect. A hatred of sin and love for God Because a proper view of grace comprehends what it took to purchase it. To quote Thomas Watson again, view sin in the red glass of Christ's sufferings. The least sin cost the price of blood. Would you take a true prospect of sin? Would you view sin correctly? Go to Golgotha. Jesus Christ was fain to veil His glory and lose His joy and pour out His soul as an offering for the least sin. Read the greatness of your sin in the deepness of Christ's wounds. Proper view of grace causes you to hate sin and hate temptation because of what it took to save you. if the blood is precious to you then his grace will be precious to you and you will not use it as an excuse and here's the thing talked about love for God being a solution to temptation we can't just love choose to love God on a whim we can't just say, all right, I'll, I'll sin this day and then choose love for God the next day. Love for God is impossible for us because we are great sinners. We can't choose love for God because we love sin. If it was us in the garden rather than Adam and Eve, we would have chosen sin. We are no different. And in, if left to ourselves, we would choose sin every single time and so what we need is desperate rescue from God God rescue me from this body of death I have no hope we need God to rescue us desperately so we pray God have mercy on me a sinner I have no hope in this fight against temptation have mercy on me give me grace And God's mercy is abundant and full and free for sinners who can't face temptation. At the end of every service, we sing a song, and I stand at the front and we call it an invitation. And it's, it's meant as a time of response. Singing and, and praying and repenting. It's a time if you are convicted to repent and believe in Christ. And that's why I'm at the front. If (laughs) Temptation and sin is what you struggle with. If you need prayer, that's why I'm at the front. I don't want to sing at you. I want you to come to me so I can pray with you. And that's why we have the invitation, but ultimately it's a time of response. We want to respond to God's Word and what He has shown us in His Word and We want to respond to His grace. Because He gives us the grace to do what we just cannot on our own. Let's pray. Father God, You know that every single one of us are this young man in this passage. Stupidly, foolishly, ignorantly, wandering straight into temptation. Father, may we take this knowledge of temptation and be equipped by it to fight and flee and defend against our enemy. But most importantly, Father, may we have a proper view of Your amazing grace that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In our moments of greatest transgression, Christ died for us. In our moments when we deserved hell the most, Christ died for us. Today, when we commit the sin that should be the end of us, Christ died for us. So may we always run to the cross for grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. In Jesus' name. Amen.